Okay, welcome, welcome everybody. It is January 6, 2019. We're in 1 Corinthians. This is part seven, I think. Uh, but we are going to get into a uh, kind of a large topic in this state because Paul mentions a uh, passage about baptism for the dead. So it's going to be in accordance with our verse-by-verse study of 1 Corinthians 15. And uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. We'll sing the word of God, set to music, sit in silence, come back, and see what we have to discover together. Lord, we uh, seek you and need you. Uh, Pray for your wisdom, pray for your spirit, the fruit of it, and help us to uh, move through um, this life, less of our flesh, more of your spirit, and... um, and to consider the words spoken today and of what worth they are from me if they have no value and they're wrong to be forgotten, but that will gain some insight into the text that we're studying. And we love you, Lord, and see you pray for people who are out there. The roads are slippery, especially right out in this parking lot. We just pray protection as people get out of their uh, vehicles and get into them that no one will slip and, and be harmed. And this and all the other things we, uh, we seek and need from you in Jesus' name. Amen. For those
One, two, three, one, two. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. Okay, so last week was one of the most uh, important teachings, I think, on the way, at least I see, the, how the faith needs to be seen today, as Paul himself described for us what the faith will look like once Jesus has overcome all things. That was our text. And he wraps it up at verse 28 of 1 Corinthians 15, and he says, And when all things shall be subdued unto him... Then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. That's what the passage says that Paul uh, gives to us. And in this passage, we are forced to see some things relative to the term God the Father in Scripture, as well as his only begotten, only human Son, Jesus Christ. So we see in Scripture that there's a hierarchy and um, that it is God the Father here in the end of verse uh, 28 that will be all in all. That's what it says. Uh, And this is one purpose of his son's work, to bring glory to God his Father. That's how Scripture puts it. So we also have to admit that as God's Word his words, his logos, became flesh and dwelt among us, that that flesh, that human being, that man, will forever be our Lord, King, and Savior. That Jesus of Nazareth will forever be our Lord, King, and Savior. He is uh, our connection to God, his Father, and now our Father. Um, As one of us. He is our connection. 
And um, as one of us, by submitting himself below all things, he overcame our world and took himself, the man, Jesus of Nazareth, God with us, into the very presence, even to the right hand of God, his Father, and our Father. And so this, there's a hierarchical relationship between the Father and the Son and between us in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 3.23 says, You are Christ's, Paul says to us believers, says to the believers then and, and alluding to us. And Christ is God's. Do you see that hierarchy that's there? You are Christ's and Christ is God. Uh, there's a link to the living God in Christ. And Jesus is the one to whom we give our allegiance as our Lord, Savior, and King. This faithful allegiance brings us to God, His Father, and now our Father. Paul reiterates in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, 3, I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is the man, and that was in that time, and the head of Christ is God. You see the hierarchy in that again, through our Lord, Savior, and King Jesus Christ. One of the best descriptions, though, if you listen with me, you can turn to Philippians 2, 5, 11, here or at home, and it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, because it was God in him, right? But he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Listen, wherefore God also has highly exalted him. You see how God's taken him and used him. He's highly exalted Jesus and given him a name above every name is what it says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of all things in heaven, all things in earth and things under the earth. He is, he's done it right. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord ready to the glory of the father to the glory of the Father. That's the hierarchy. This is why one reason why Jesus did what he did. It's to the glory of the Father. Paul's summary of God and the Lord Jesus Christ is found in 1 Corinthians 8, 6. It says, But there is but one God, the Father. That's Paul's words. You take them how you want to take them. There is but one God, comma, the Father, comma, of whom are all things and we in him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things and we in him. Yeah, that, that passage is powerful. So here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is telling us, describing for us, what the wrap-up of Jesus' mediatorial reign will look like, having accomplished everything on our behalf in this world as the human king, to bring us to God his Father and to bring God his Father glory. At 1 Corinthians 15, 28, Paul then says, And when all things shall be subdued unto him, Jesus Christ, the Lord, Savior, and King, then shall the Son also be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. When Paul wrote this, this hasn't happened yet. This has not happened as he's writing these words in his life and in the life after he passes uh, for a while. Reading it now and looking at Revelation and other things in Scripture, I believe it has happened. So, of course, this changes nothing in our need for Jesus as Lord, Savior, King. He is still the one who made it possible for all to be reconciled to God, and I would suggest he continues to be Lord, Savior, and King over the entire human race. In the previous verses, Paul wrote of the promises that all things would be subjected to God. In this verse, he speaks of it actually being done. And again, to him, 
to them then in the future. And he says, then shall the son also himself be subject to him that put all things under him that God would be all in all. I really don't know how to interpret the meaning of that passage. I'm not sure anybody does. There are a number of approaches to it, but let's just quickly touch the the obvious points that can't be written off that are in scripture. The most evident refers to some sort of change occurring. Paul is describing a change that would occur. Of course, I believe it has occurred. If you don't, that change will occur. We can't say what that change is. We can make suggestions, but some sort of change is going to occur. Secondly, we have to note that his kingdom will not end. And it is a perpetual kingdom. This is, this is throughout scripture. Uh, 2 Samuel 7.16, Isaiah 9.6.7, Daniel 2.44, 7.14. All talk about a perpetual kingdom that once that kingdom's in place, It will not end. It will go on forever and ever and ever. Nevertheless, as the mediator between God, his father, and man, us, perhaps this office is resigned as the mediator. Perhaps there's no more need of mediation if God is all in all after the victory of all things. And... um, He's made the atonement, he's recovered the world, and the Father now assumes something that was not present since the fall. He retakes the whole thing back into his hands because of the work of his Son. It is interesting that in describing Jesus in Isaiah 9-6, and it's one of the only times Father is used in the Old Testament, that Jesus is referred to as the Father of the everlasting age. Jesus is referred to that, and um, of that age that will not cease to reign. So this topic is so full of conjecture, I don't think it's worth it or beneficial for us to get into it here in milk. Suffice it to say, some sort of change was to occur when all things listed above would be complete. Now at verse 19 through 28, which we have covered already, we just kind of went over 28 again, Most Bible commentators and scholars, and I agree with them, uh, say that Paul kind of sidetracked for a minute. He's still talking about resurrection and stuff, but that he sidetracked directly off the teaching of resurrection. And now at verse 29, he returns to talking about the resurrection. So if, let me kind of remove that parenthetical reference and just suggest what Paul would have been saying if he didn't get sidetracked. Look at verse uh, uh, chapter 15, verse 17. He's talking about the resurrection. He says, And if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain, and you are yet in your sins. Then also they which are dead in Christ are perished. If in this life we have hope in Christ only, we are of all men most miserable. Remove the uh, verses uh, 20 through 28. That's a parenthetical reference. And drop down to 29. So he ends with, we are all men most miserable. Otherwise, what will become of those who got themselves baptized for the dead? If the dead do not rise at all, why are they baptized for them? And why stand we in jeopardy at every hour? I protest by your rejoicing that I have in Christ uh, Jesus, our Lord, I die daily. If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it me? If the dead rise not, let us eat, eat drink, uh, for tomorrow we die. Um, be not deceived, evil communications, corrupt good manners, awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. So go back with me. Um, We note that this is the only reference to the practice of baptism for the dead in the entire Bible. And as we talk about it, I'm going to throw out some key things and I'll try to put the right emphasis on the right syllable so that you get it. So, This is one. This is the only place where we read about this practice called baptism for the dead. And the best way to understand any single reference to something in Scripture is to first examine the passages around it. 
So when we read 1 Corinthians 15, 29 in its context, we have to admit clearly that 1529, which mentions baptism for the dead, is clearly talking in reference to resurrection, not baptism. Start off with that. Uh, that's the single dominating theme of this chapter, resurrection. This practice is thrown in there at verse 29 as a reference Paul is using to the people then reading his epistle in literal ink and paper, and they would know what he was talking about, right? In verses 1 through 11, Paul declares that Christ, after he died for sin, was raised from the dead, and he says so many have saw him, including 500 people who are still alive. And then at verse 12 through 18, and then 29 through 49, he takes all his arguments for the importance and the reasonableness of a resurrection. The modern reader needs to remember that in the Hebrew Christian world, the doctrine of the resurrection, which was out in Hellenized parts of the world like Corinth, Greek places in the world, resurrection to them was the biggest joke. It was a joke. They were like, you've got to be kidding. So that idea of resurrection had crept into the church at Corinth. All right. In any case, what's important to see is that Paul's mention of baptism for the dead is one of his arguments that he uses to defend the reasonableness of a resurrection. That's the only reason it's there. That's, remember that, put it, that in your basket when you think of baptism for the dead. One, it's not mentioned anywhere else. Two, it's all, the context is all about resurrection. And three, he's using this practice to support the idea of a resurrection. And even the Mormons admit that. The real question to ask then is, who is at Corinth practicing baptisms for the dead? And do they and the practice have Paul's approval? We have to understand that. And there are several answers out there relative to this. Paul's blunt rhetoric uh, in verse 12 expresses the whole burden of this chapter. At verse 12, he says, Now if Christ be preached that rose from the dead, how say some of you there's no resurrection of the dead? That is the question of the chapter. How are some of you saying there's no resurrection of the dead? All right? So the entire series of arguments in verses 13 through 49 are specifically aimed at refuting these false teachers' claims of a resurrection. All right. The following outline gives a quick overview of the passages. If there's no resurrection, Christ is not risen, verses 13, 16. Therefore, our preaching is vain, and yet we are in our sins, verse 14 through 17. Therefore, we are false witnesses, the apostles, verse 15. Therefore, the dead in Christ are perished, verse 18. Therefore, Christians are the most of all people, the most miserable. Now I'm emphasizing that. We're, stop on that word. He says Christians are of all people the most miserable. Then, as I said, we come to his sidebar that goes from verse 20 to verse 27. That's all a parenthetical reference. And he talks about all the stuff we've been covering for the past several weeks about the end of all things and what will happen there, which is a fascinating insight into eschatology, end times, and what plan God has. But that's really not that big of a part of this. And then at verses 30 through 34, Paul continues to ask, why do we suffer abuse for the gospel if there's no resurrection? He says we are of all men most miserable. And then he it continues on and says, why do we continue to suffer in this way? Now, listen to what he says at verse 30 through 32. And why stand we in jeopardy at every hour? I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Jesus Christ. I die daily. Two points of misery. Uh, if I, after the manner of men, I have fought with beasts, at Ephesus, another point of misery. What advantages me if the dead rise not? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die, being most miserable of men. What are we doing all this for? Why are we suffering in this way? Why am I fighting beasts at Ephesus? Why are we in jeopardy at every hour? 
if there's no resurrection. What he's going to do at verse 29 is he's going to include this baptism for the dead they're practicing to show it's even more insidious to say there's no resurrection if you're going to practice this thing. And we'll talk about that thing. I submit to you that Paul is saying about baptism for the dead, there's two of the best possible thoughts behind his argument. You ready? The first possible meaning is uh, it was being done, these baptisms for the dead, by a group who probably simultaneously were denying the resurrection. And this is even what the Mormon missionaries might teach. They'll say, yeah, that's the point. And this is the one they say. This is supported by Paul's use of a they and we in the verses. So note the King James translation. Else what shall they do, which are baptized for the dead? If the dead rise not at all, why are they then baptized for the dead? Talking about a group that's not the believers, not Paul, not the Christians. Listen to what he says in the next verse. And why stand we in jeopardy at every hour? So there's a they and there's a we going on here. And in his language, he is, he is distinguishing between the they who are practicing something, uh, even though they don't believe in a resurrection, and there's a we who are the believers in Christ, I believe, or the apostles at least. So perhaps there is the they who both denied the resurrection and performed baptisms for the dead, and there is the we, the believers, and or at least the apostles. That's one reasonable explanation of 29, showing that the they were not Christian and showing that baptism for the dead and what they were doing with it has no relationship to Christianity because it's a they who are doing it. And the we are those who are standing in jeopardy at every hour, okay? So he's all doing all of this though to defend the fact of a resurrection. The second thing, which I've alluded to before, is the thinking is this. Paul is referring to actual baptisms water baptisms here. The baptisms for the dead is, is just an additional way that he is describing the sufferings that Christians endure. So when he says baptisms for the dead, it doesn't mean that people are being baptized for dead people. It means that baptism is for those who are going to die. And let me explain. It sounds a little far-fetched, but before the parenthetical reference verses, Paul states that if there's no resurrection, they are of most men the most miserable. Then we get on the rabbit trail, and then he comes back and says, Otherwise, what shall we do which are baptized for the dead? If the dead rise not at all, why are they then baptized for the dead? And why stand we in jeopardy at every hour? See, to receive water baptism in that day, in Christ's name, was a public profession, and to receive it was a death sentence. Because you were in a Jewish community, or you were in a community of Roman soldiers, or you're a community of Gnostics or Greeks, and you identified, that's what the word means, you identify yourself as a Christian. And by doing that, you submitted yourself to potential martyrdom. And we remember what Nero did to Christians during that time. I mean, hundreds of thousands of Christians were put to death at that time. So to receive water baptism was an invitation to suffering, even death. So what he could be saying is, if there's no resurrection, why are people accepting water baptism to replace those who have been put to death and martyred, only to expose themselves to more death, more martyrdom? So when he uses the phrase baptism for the dead, he's saying these guys have been martyred as Christians, identified by baptism. And when someone else gets baptized, they're being baptized for those who were put to death. Why are they being baptized for the dead? Now, it sounds like a, a stretch, but when you look at it in context of the suffering that he mentions after verse 29, and why stand we in jeopardy at every hour? There's a connection between physical death and receiving baptism. So if the rite of actual baptism for the dead was a legitimate 
part of the apostolic teaching, by the way, we would expect Paul to say, what shall you do who are baptized for the dead? Or why, why shall we be baptized for the dead? But instead he uses the they. So that's just going back to the idea that he wasn't condoning it either if he's thinking of it as an actual right for people who have deceased. Paul's use of they and we is clear in Romans 9, 1, 3 and 10, 4. He describes his brethren as they in Romans 10. He says they, they have this, they have that, my Jewish brothers. And then he comes back and he refers to as we, as we. He does this all through 1 Corinthians 15. There's a they and there's a we. So I think in that sense, he is clearly showing us that those who practice baptism for the dead are part of the they. But if you don't accept that, consider the second theory, which is, Paul was saying, we have gone through so much suffering. We are most miserable if there's no resurrection. You're baptizing people to replace our dead in the faith. And why are we doing this if we're not going to be resurrected, right? So... The biting aspect of Paul's argument becomes sort of clear to me. These false teachers are inconsistent. They deny the resurrection, yet they engage in a practice baptizing either for the dead as a a ritual I don't endorse because of the they-we argument, or they're baptizing for our dead, replacing members in the church with new members who are only going to be subject to more misery. This is exactly the understanding of the text held by a Christian, an early Christian writer, Tertullian. Tertullian had a lot of false doctrine. All the early church fathers had false doctrine. Uh, it came up with really fanciful stuff when they started writing. But he says in first, about 1 Corinthians 15, 29, his, Paul's only aim in alluding to it was that he might all the more firmly insist upon a resurrection of the body in proportion as they who were vainly baptized for the dead resorted to a practice from their belief of such a resurrection, end quote. Now, some people wonder how come Paul didn't openly refute this practice? Let me give you a couple of ideas. First, Paul has already associated the right with false teachers through his use of they and we. And the reader of his epistle would know that. So he didn't need to take more time and say, and this is a a false heretical practice, which you don't need to be involved in. Secondly, it was only mentioned once. So we know you can't really build a foundation on these esoteric uh, passages, which is what uh, the founder of Joseph Smith did. And those of you who don't know, the reason I keep mentioning Mormonism and Joseph Smith is because they do something called baptisms for the dead in their temples. And it's all based off this one reference showing that Joseph... Um, there was a great cartoon in a magazine that used to be published up here. And um, I think it's still published. It is still published. Sunstone Magazine, there was this cartoon. And Joseph Smith's wife tells him, get out and go to work. And he said, uh, just one minute, let, let me finish my tea. And as he's looking in the uh, thing, the next panel of the cartoons, he's looking in the tea, goes, hmm, interesting tea leaves. Joseph Smith was able to take one single slight reference and build an empire of theology upon it. He called that the inspiration of the Spirit. Well, that's what he did with 1 Corinthians 15, 29. He took this one reference that Paul just sorts of says, look, why are you even doing this? And just built a whole. And so that's what the youth do in the Mormon church. They go to their temples. They they don't go through to be endowed yet. But when you're young, they hold these baptisms for the dead parties. And if you're worthy, you know, you get to go in and you get dunked over and over and over again for dead people. And that's why they do genealogy which Paul also condemns. Endless genealogies, he says, get rid of them, right? So it's a reconstruction of these esoteric passages to make something up. And anyway, we know that history doesn't show it's ever taken hold. There's a group called the Marcionite sect of the second century. They practice baptisms for the dead. Um, And we know that there was a society called the Ephrata Society in Pennsylvania, 1700s. They were kind of a cultic Christian group, and they started doing it too. And then later on in the 1840s, Joseph's 3040s, Joseph Smith brought it back up. So um, let's get back to, so I don't go on too big of a parenthetical reference. Those who denied the resurrection, Paul says, 
Else what should they be baptized for the dead? If the dead rise not at all, why are they being baptized for the dead? Why are they being baptized for our Christians who have died is what I think. And he says, and why stand we in jeopardy at every hour? Why are we constantly risking our lives and encountering danger of every kind by being baptized if there's no resurrection? And if we're doing this, we have, most, we have all men are most miserable. And it seems that this reference speaks particularly to Paul himself as an apostle. He's endured a lot. And he's saying, come on, man, this, the resurrection's our hope. Then at verse 31, he says, I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Jesus Christ, our Lord, I die daily. It is such a difficult passage in, in the King James. If you understand it and you're reading the King James, you're a genius, just write like that. I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Jesus Christ, our Lord, I die daily. Uh, the real meaning, apparently, it's oath-making, and it's a swearing, a form of swearing that Paul is doing, and the meaning seems to be, I swear, comma, that I die daily for the faith, comma, and I assert this death I die daily as strongly as I assert that you are saved. That's the easiest way to understand, I think, that passage, all right? The part of him dying daily seems to be the point because he's alluding to the suffering he endures. Why am I doing it if there's no resurrection? Verse 31, he adds some of his suffering we don't read about anywhere else. If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it me if the dead rise not? Let's eat, drink, for tomorrow we die, right? So, there are a bunch of interpretations from scholars of old on this passage. And the reason there's different interpretations of it is because we don't read anywhere in secular or Christian history that Paul ever got into a war with a beast at Ephesus. But just because Luke doesn't include it in the book of Acts, and just because secular historians never record that, uh, that uh, Paul was at Ephesus fighting beasts, we do know... <coughs> that that was a common practice for Christians to get, be forced to engage with wild beasts. And apparently Paul did it. And uh, just because it's not mentioned doesn't mean he didn't. And then we also read in uh, 2 Corinthians 11, which we're coming to, that Paul says amidst all his suffering, shipwrecked, being stoned, being whipped, being this, he says, I have suffered deaths off deaths oft. And it is thought that he means I have been taken to the point of death. I have been facing my own death many times. And that is kind of a general reference that covers him saying, I've been at Ephesus even fighting beasts. So it just shows that, you know, the, 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 the book isn't exhaustive. It doesn't answer every single thing for us. And that might be a reasonable way to see it. You know, it just wasn't recorded. But the point is, what advantage does it give me to go and fight with beasts? What, benefits am I, what benefit do I have risking my life in this way if I'm not going to rise, if I'm going to die and go to Sheol like our forefathers have taught for 1,500 years? I'm going to go to the covered place, translated hell. I'm going to be separated from God forever. Nothing has happened. My body will lay in the grave Physical body, spirit body will lay separated from God. Why am I fighting beasts? And he responds to his own question by making a suggestion. He says, if this is the case, he says, why don't I just eat, drink, for tomorrow I will die. And, or like we would say it, let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. The whole deal is over. And that is kind of... A, a, a general but major division between Christians or even religious people, not just Christians, and the world. Non-deists, um, no-God people, humanists without God. The religious people say, I will live my life as if there is a resurrection. I will live my life as if there is an afterlife. I will live my life as though I will meet Allah, whatever the faith, it is an idea that you live your life here in accordance to its tenets so that when you die, you enter into his presence and something occurs as a result of your living the uh, tenets that he has prescribed in your faith. 
On the other hand, it is literally eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. And it may not be literally food and wine and, and, and drugs. It could be eat and drink could be the things of this world, whatever it is, you know. That line, let's eat and drink, is taken from Isaiah twenty-two thirteen. Paul always is referencing the Old Testament. And these lines of wisdom come from there uh, mostly. And it was given in Israel um, by Isaiah when Shennacherib and the Assyrian army, and just as a side note, the Assyrians in terms of an army, you want to read something interesting. Read what they were like. I mean, they were bad, mean, torturous people, the Assyrians, upon the Jews. Well, Shennacherib and the Assyrian army uh, comes at uh, uh, Israel and Israel had just sort of collectively given up hope. And so instead of weeping and calling on God to save them and fasting, which is what the Jews did, and renting their clothes and going into humiliation with dust as a nation because of this frightening group of Assyrians coming upon them, Isaiah says that what they, how they responded to is let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. So it's kind of an indirect slap in the, in, the faith, in the face of a person of faith. You've given up hope in, in God to save you. You've just, come on, let's just party, right? So he adds, be not deceived, verse 33, to the believers at Corinth. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Okay, it's really interesting. The line seems to be referring to the evil communications that the false teachers in Corinth were providing about the resurrection. And the connection seems to be when they say there's no resurrection, the next result will be you are going to be corrupted by that if you believe it and you, and you engage with it long enough. And then you will act on that in a bad manner. So that's why he says, don't be deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Enough association with evil communications and you will become more. And the example I used to give my daughters when they were young is that if you're in a white dress and you go to a big mud puddle with a bunch of boys fighting in that mud puddle, your white dress is going to get dirty. And, and the example is it's really tough, really tough for there to be intimate associations without there being a rubbing off of the one of the other. And the key to this is intimate associations. And I'm going to prove that in a second relative to the text. But that's his point. They have been preaching no resurrection. That could end up in your mind as let's just eat, drink, and tomorrow we die. This is one of the uh, complaints against me in my teaching of the second coming has happened. Many Christians say that is going, that corrupt communication is going to cause Christians to just give up hope and just be like, there's nothing left for me. But I think the truth, when you're talking about the truth, is not an evil communication. So I refuse that. They also have that problem when talking about hell being fulfilled. If you strip hell away from the mindset of people, that evil communication, Mr. McCraney, you are going to cause people to not fear hell. And without a fear of hell, your evil communication will cause them to just eat, drink, and be merry, right? So, uh, but that all has to, and I just have to admit, that's their logic and reasoning, and this passage can be used in that way. But if that's the case in everything, you can just say, forget about the truth. Let's just use a noble lie and keep everybody dumb about what the facts really are and so that they will fear and act right. That's not what Paul's saying here. He's just saying when there is an evil communication, not the truth, not something supported by scripture, but there's something bad, it will corrupt good manners. Don't fool yourself, he says. Evil communications corrupt good actions is really what it is. Now, the phrase evil communications means bad intercourse. Get your minds out of your pants, those of you who are thinking uh, something else. But it means bad engage, real intimate engagement with others who uh, bear the evil communications. It doesn't just, it's bad interpersonal koinonia is the, is the term. 
and bad intimate relations can corrupt you. This was the problem with the children of Israel and God saying, don't marry people of pagans because uh, you will start worshiping their gods, right? And we talked about some of that last week. So in other words, Paul is not talking about simple conversations with people that you have across the street or, you know, whatever. He's talking about companionship and with those in Corinth, the companionship of those who are in Corinth, having companionship with Gnostics and with Greeks who say there's no resurrection. Remember, Paul's job was to take that bride and bring her through until Christ took the church. So there was, there was to be none of this intermingling, right? We live in a different age today where we are the temple of God and he lives in us. And he was living in them too, but we don't have that same thing from the apostles put upon us. So I think there's a different application. What's interesting about the quote is that it's a direct quote from a Greek prophet, a Greek, not prophet, a Greek poet. This is a direct quote from a Greek poet. His name is Menander. And Menander was a very popular poet at one time. Uh, he was elegant. He was super witty. He was refined, and he was so popular as a poet, but when he was 52 years old, he drowned himself. And the reason he drowned himself is because he became a companion with a guy named Philemon, not related to the biblical Philemon. And Menander and Philemon became uh, associates, and Philemon became more popular in his poetry than Menander. And Menander couldn't take it, and so he drowned himself. So by Paul actually referring to a, a church at Corinth, which is part of Greece, and using one of their poets, who is well-respected, and he just drops a line that's from that poet that says, don't be deceived, you guys. Evil communications corrupt good actions. They knew exactly what he meant. Really, really smart, right? They knew that okay, we see how communications, intimate communications can cause bad actions. I just find that, 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 that just so fascinating. So he says at verse 34, awake to righteousness and sin not for some have not the knowledge of God. And this I speak to your shame. So the word translated awake doesn't just mean get up in the morning. It means um, get out of your deep, deep torpor, your deep, drunken slumber. <laughs> it's really, that's really what it relates to. He's, he's, he's telling them you guys have become intoxicated. You're sleeping dully in your life. Awake to that, right? Rise up to the ways of, of goodness and righteousness, to a holy life, to sound doctrine, or perhaps rise up to what is good and right and how things should be. Get rid of this idea about no resurrection. It is a really bad one, he's saying. So, and he says, and I say this to your shame, meaning your slumbering, your slumbering nature is on you, Right? And Paul was known to you sleeping and slumbering throughout his writings in, in Romans 13, 11, He says, knowing the time that now it is high time to wake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we believed. He was pointing to Jesus coming back there. He also wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5, 5, You are the children of light and children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness, these allusions to sleeping in darkness and seeing uh, obscurely. You are children of light, rise up and depart from error. And relationships, intimate relationships with ignorant men, because it can lead to drowning yourself in a river. And now, having said this, he steps directly in to the most profound teaching on the resurrection. And this is where we get info that is so important to understanding what the resurrection is. I'm going to read through it with you before closing up right now. But before doing so, in, in the faith, most people believe that the resurrection is going to be when all these graveyards 
and the oceans and the 2,000 years of people dying, all are going to come back together, reparticularize in a perfect way, rise from the grave. That is the standard. And I used to believe that and teach it, and I thought it until I read these passages. I'm not asking you to trust me and how I'm going to teach them next week and the week to follow. I'm asking you to read the passages with me and hear what Paul says. You tell me. Some of them are nuanced and you have to give it some thought, but you just tell me directly what you think the resurrection is after we read these and then after we study them together. So here we go. Verse 35. Listen carefully to the things he says. But some men will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? You fool. That which thou sowest is not made alive unless it dies. And that which thou sowest, thou sowest not that body that shall be, but bear grain. It may chance of wheat or some other grain, but God giveth it a body as it has pleased him, and to every seed his own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fishes, another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for one star differeth from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. Sown means planted. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. So and so it is written, the first man Adam was made a living soul and the last Adam was made a living spirit. Howbeit that which first is spiritual, but that which is natural and afterward that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthly. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As is the earthly, such are they also that are earthly. As is the heavenly, such are they that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither does corruption inherit corruption. And we'll get to these verses next week. Comments, questions, insights. Oh, yes, microphone. Uh, this is Richard. Um, do you see anything in the reference of the baptism for the dead in the is it the greek original yeah that you know in talking about baptism it's metaphorically referred to as a death you know and, and rising you know you're in the water you're dead you're put under then you come out in resurrection could there be any is he in any way alluding to that in his great baptism insight. for the dead because I've never, no, I've never read a commentator say that. That's a great insight because that's what baptism is, isn't it? Dying right. with Jesus. Right. Rising to new life. So that's mm. all it could mean. Right. Fantastic. Never, never read it. Good job. Anybody else? You guys' insights are important.
way you've gotten faster. I was just going to mention that when, when the Book of Mormon was written, there's no mention in there at all about baptism. Because and if you look in Alma, he talks about you, this is the life to, this is the, the time to repent. Oh, yeah. that there is no chance after this life. So baptism for the dead really was not even thought of until Joseph's older brother, who was really designated as the family to be the prophet uh, of a new um, millennium. And uh, when he suddenly died, uh, the whole family, of course, was in grief. And then it was handed down to Joseph Smith as being the, the prophet, seer, and revelator of the new church. So when Joseph Smith finally figured out from the Bible, we'll use this doctrine and we'll, that'll satisfy a lot, not only my own family, but it'll also all those who have lost loved ones, and we'll tie that in to what Mormonism is. And so I just... Because his older brother hadn't been baptized. Correct. Yeah. yeah. He, his, his older mother was distraught. Right. Yeah. yeah so. Great. Great stuff. Thanks so much, Danny. My name is Ray. <clears throat> this, this issue of baptism has been very perplexing to me. Um, first question. When they were practicing baptism for the dead, was that a water baptism, do you think? Yeah. Now, do you think that that was instituted um, as part of the Jewish faith, or was it instituted after the Savior came and taught right. baptism? Are you talking about water baptism, not baptism for the dead, just water baptism, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Jewish, uh, the nation of Israel was big on ablutions, washings for repentance, washings for new life. That carried over into John coming and assigning that act of ablutions to people who wanted to repent and receive the Messiah. Everybody who did that and received John's baptism for the Messiah, who were Jews only then, later on were rebaptized in the name of Christ. John's baptism was a baptism for repentance. Yeah. The, the baptism they all received by John was to show they had received Christ by faith. That's what it was for. Let me, let me bring you back to the instance where the seven, uh, I'll refer to them as missionaries were called. And uh, Philip particularly went out and was proselyting, and he was told to go to the Ethiopian. Yeah. And he went to the Ethiopian and taught, and the Ethiopian confessed Jesus is the Christ. They happened to be going through some water, or near water, and the Ethiopian said, baptize me. Yeah. That was a water baptized. Yeah. And then he laid his hands on him and, and ordained him. Set him so, apart. Huh? Yeah, set him apart. Set him apart. Yeah. Which you don't hear much of no. in, in churches today. Well, it was, uh, done, it was done mostly by those like Philip and, and the other apostles. They were setting the elders in the community apart to do a specific work in the body. But those elders and stuff, just by virtue of that's what the Jews did too, might do it by tradition, but it carried no power. It was symbolic. God is the one who called. No one laid hands on Paul. You know, it was just God who was setting the bar. Yeah, that's the reason this, this issue is so complexing. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, yeah, because I of appreciate the, your insight, and I'm it's very perplexing. anxious to see what you're going to say next week. Is it, is it perplexing, Ray, because there is such an amalgamation of they believed and were baptized, there was laying on of hands, and then there wasn't, and all this kind of wishy-washy kind of stuff? Remember this, the book of Acts is a, it's an ebbing out of the old way, but it still has water there. It's just pulling back and it's an influx of the new way. And the book of Acts is that cross point between the old covenant and Christ receiving salvation by faith. And so we have a heavy kind of weird mixture here where it, both are going on. And, and, and that's why it's difficult. 
Well, in answer to your question, it's perplexing because when you look at the uh, four Gospels and the baptism of John and the commission that the Savior gave the apostles to go out and baptize, uh, that all seemed to be a physical baptism to me. I think it was. Okay. Yeah, I think it was. And uh, I, I know that your concept, and I'd like to believe the same, that the baptism is a spiritual thing. And uh, anyone that uh, becomes the body of Christ who is a believer of the Savior and has a testimony of his mission uh, has received that spiritual baptism. Right. But even in the, like I say, the, the example I give you about the Ethiopian, that apparently, even though they were making the transition from the, the gospel to the, uh, it, it was a, a physical or uh, Definitely. baptism. Two points. One, remember what John said, who did the water baptizing. What did he, he say? He I said, come, I will send someone who will baptize you with fire and the, and the Spirit. Holy Spirit. That's the baptism that Christians generally, unless they still adhere to water baptism, if you do, fine. But that's the baptism that we're looking for, is the baptism of you get by Jesus through faith and the Spirit with fire. The water baptism is something we do because, and that's what the Greek supports, we do it because we have received that not in order to receive that. I'm not against water baptism. I think it's a wonderful thing. So you think that this baptism that the Corinthians were doing for the dead, uh, was that kind of a spiritual? Or no, I, I, think it was, I think it was actually water baptism. A water baptism. One final thing. Remember in 1 Corinthians 1, I think, Paul says, listen, I preached the gospel, therefore I didn't baptize. That's right. Showing that water baptism, I baptized few people. He goes, maybe one or two. But showing that water baptism is not part of the good news. Not part of the good news. That's why he said, I preached the good news. Therefore, I didn't water baptize. And the second thing is, remember the thief on the cross. How is today you'll be with me in paradise if he didn't receive John's baptism or Jesus' baptism? So all of those factors, if they play in, will help you start clear the forest of the idea that you must be water baptized to enter into the kingdom of God. Okay, one last question, and yeah. I think it might be related to Richard? Uh, Mr. Dutcher's comment. Is there, is there any information that there was any baptisms done during the Old Testament times? I don't, I'm not sure in the Septuagint, which is the translation of the Old into the Greek, if the word baptizo is used. I'm sure it is. And I don't know the answer to that question, but we can find out. Well, I know that there's just references to what they call ablutions. And that's the other thing about baptism is that while we know it's good to be baptized by immersion, we also know that there are many times when it could have just been throwing water, sprinkling, or anything. Just a washing of water was still called an ablution. We'll have to okay. see. Okay, if you can find that answer, was that a spiritual type? Definitely. Or a physical? Uh, definitely. Uh, definitely both, because in the Greek, the Holy Spirit poured over people in the Old Testament, but it didn't go E-N in the Greek, that means inside, and it didn't overflow with spiritual gifts unless the Spirit was upon them. When Christ came, the Holy Spirit dwells inside. So it was definitely spiritual baptism that water would pour over prophets of the Old Testament, your question really more so is, was it physically done? Isn't that right? Yeah. Okay. I'll see if we can find that out. Anything else? Thanks, you guys. Oh, is there more? Oh, good job. Hi, Earl. <coughs> uh, I'm sh I may have missed Richard's question exactly, but is it possible that the people were so excited about this concept of baptism that they were actually baptizing them there for um, those that were dead, spiritually dead, their own family maybe, they oh. were baptizing for their own family members who 
weren't believers, but they felt like baptism was that important. Is, could you stretch that that far that the dead were actually spiritually dead, not actually it, dead? It could be stretched that far, that that was where the practice came from. The question, Earl, is did Paul endorse that as a practice? No, 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 right. no, right. Yeah. All right, Elaine. Uh, wasn't the Red Sea crossing a type of baptism? Definitely, on dry ground. That shows that that was by mist, right? They didn't get, so all of it is, it's a, it's a big topic. And you know, if you don't have A to Z, we cover baptism pretty good in there. Pick it up, just grab it in the back, take it. But that's another evidence of baptism. That's why Paul says there are many baptisms and many types. Yanni. I just want to clarify that, that story about the eunuch and Philip. It was the eunuch's idea. He said, what's hindered, there's some water. What's hindering me from getting baptized? And Peter's like, Sure. Or mm. Philip says, sure. Ooh, And so point. they went into the water and he was baptized. But Philip didn't say, you, now you need to get baptized. Oh, that was good. a eunuch. He was coming back from Jerusalem. And he was a, a believer in the Jewish custom. And so he, he was probably a, an Ethiopian Jew. Mm -hmm. And so he, want, he thought maybe baptism is important. Philip's like, yeah, sure, we'll get in the water and I'll baptize you. Sure. But then it doesn't say that he was set apart. It says that the spirit carried Philip away right oh. afterwards. So, okay. um, but anyway, that was sort of what. Thank you for good clarifications, you guys. Really good stuff, all of you. All right, let's pray and get out of here and be Christian somehow. Lord, uh, grateful for your spirit, grateful for the wisdom of knowledge that you give us as, as bearers of you in us. Uh, grateful that we fully recognize that you loved us so much. You gave us your son who paid for our sin, lived the perfect life, and is Lord, King, and Savior over us. And we submit uh, humbly to uh, him and his ways, and we want to be better Christians. And so we gather together and talk about these things and grateful for uh, your spirit that validates and helps us to understand um, these, these things that we talk about and that are talked about in the faith. Uh, we pray for those who are on the list, comfort and peace to those who have lost loved ones this year. Gracie's family, her third birthday was yesterday. Brutal, lost her just several weeks ago. Safety on the roads for travelers, healing and comfort for in the pain and illness, uh, especially cancer that so many people that we know have it. Pray for comfort and solace for those who are lonely, those who are having trouble making ends meet. Pray for Patrick, who's had a long illness lung infection and other problems and that you'll help him to be able to continue to go to work, keep his job and, and keep things going and pray for all those who are struggling through divorces and separations and things that are painful in this life. And we just ask you, Lord, start our year, kick us into this and make it a year where you show yourselves in our lives and you teach us what you want us to know. And we know that as your children, we cannot go wrong uh, with having you as our father. And we thank the Lord Jesus Christ for making that possible. And we just pray that we will move forward now in faith, using this week and the time allotted to do your will and not just our own. We know you give us the freedom and we have talents and interests and things that we do. But let us make you the priority. And we pray for this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.